so, um, as I've said, you are set for an amazing evening. I have two fantastic guests that I'm going to be inviting to the stage. Uh, it gives me great pleasure, first of all, to invite to the stage someone who is known as British Lovers Rock singer. She's best known as the Queen of Lovers Rock. So can you put your hands together for the Queen? That is Carol. Does. I said, can you take a seat there, but she chooses her own seat. <laughs> okay, so, our very next guest is one of London's most versatile DJs, spinning everything from grime, UK hip-hop, to classic house and beyond. Can you now put your hands together to the one who goes as the shy one, Marley Larrington Nelson. <laughs> So you are both very welcome. Um, I'm just going to press record because what we're doing tonight is we're doing uh, an interview that resembles some of the questions that are going to be asked um, if you decide to be one of the individuals that's interviewed by one of the story finders. So I'm going to press record and then we are going to kick off. So thank you both for coming to no base like home. How exciting. So Carol, uh, of course, I grew up on your music. Shy one, I'm old enough to be your mother. <laughs> so we are going on a journey and we're going to talk about how reggae music has influenced a number of different genres. So Shy one, if you don't mind, I will start with Carol. Makes sense. <laughs> so Carol. Yes. I found this really quite interesting because you actually started your career in pharmacy, am I right? Yes, that was one of the um, paths I had hoped to go down as a young student. And then I kind of moved from pharmacy and um, went into business and ended up in music. How fantastic. Well, I'm glad actually that I'm not visiting you for any paracetamols because I have had an amazing time with your music. So tell us a little bit about your background and your connection to Brent. Um, I grew up in, in Hertfordshire and when I left um, home and, and uh, finished my studies, I somehow ended up in Brent. So I ended up in Wembley um, and um, I spent a long time living in, in Brent and Wembley and, and all my music as well, started in uh, Rockledge Avenue. See what Sarita was saying about Harlston being the epicentre? For those of you that don't know, Rockledge Avenue is in Harlston. In Harlston. In Harlston. And my very first album, um, I took, which has now become an iconic picture, I took um, the picture um, in the back of Harlston, the back of Stonebridge, um, where I'm sitting on a car with my hair in plaques and stuff. And that, that was the back of Stonebridge Estate. Mm. So, you know, that's now, you know, become like an iconic picture. Absolutely. You know, I've learned that maybe I kind of want a different coat or something. But it's, you know, it's what it is, right? It's, it's the album and the image that people have, I think, it's first of all, when they're expected. Yeah, it's just incredible. I remember sitting on the car on the back streets of Harlesden with a fur coat thinking, this is really ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> Works, though. 
but it's, you know, anyway. So, past, you know, Brent has always been a, a very natural home for me and um, holds many great and wonderful uh, memories. Fabulous, thank so, you. So, yeah, so... So, Shailana, I don't know if you have any such photos, but what is your connection to Brent? Tell us a bit about yourself. Uh, I definitely don't have any photos on that level or quite as legendary. Not yet, but it will happen, it will happen. One day. It will happen. Do you know that people have been recreating the photo as well? I know, there's the yeah. whole thing that goes around where they've been recreated in and it's been circulating yeah. and I know it's amazing. That's fantastic, I didn't know that. So tell us about your background and your relationship to Brent. So my family, um, half Jamaican, half Solution, my Jamaican side came over and settled in Kensal Green and then slowly uh, moved to, well still based in Harlesden and Wembley mm -hmm. and I grew up in Harrow and but obviously spent all my time with my nans in Kensal Green. So Brent as well, I was raised, I learned to ride a bike on Island Road, um, well, Carnival of course, um, I took part of, well no, it's not really Brent, but still. It's, yeah, it, but you spent enough time in Brent to be known as somebody who we can include uh, in the London Borough of Cultures of Brent, because Brent has a very vast community of um, individuals, and so we can have you in a little bit if you're just on the edge because I'm sure there were some people from South London that when Zerita was saying that Harlesden is, there was some silence uh, but yeah, it's, it, it's good so I like that so Carol, so from pharmacy how did you become a singer-songwriter? Well music has always been part of my life um, I grew up in the church, Pentecostal church uh, my grandmother was, they used to call her the Belle of Trelawney so she was always, she was a great singer and loved music and she instilled that in me from a very young age. So going to church every Sunday, singing every week and choir practice and prayer meeting and blah, blah, blah. So I was forever singing and um, it's something that I knew within me was something that I really wanted to do. But, you know, in those days you didn't quite know whether music was something that would give you a good standard of living. I remember my um, careers advisors saying, oh, but my dear, most of them are resting. <laughs> I'm laughing because we yeah. all had one of those careers advisors. You know, most musicians I know are resting, you know, or, or working in a cafe somewhere. You know? So there was never, like now you have so many courses and so many pathways to get into music. That was never, ever... Um, on my horizon, so the only way to get on was academically, you know, you know, your kind of your usual professions of um, pharmacy, accountancy. So I went from pharmacy and I studied to be an accountant and did it, did that route. But music was always, where your heart always was. my passion. Always, I studied classical piano from I was about seven, and I sang and wrote songs from when I can remember. That's amazing. Thank you, Carol. So that's quite a good point to bring you back, Shawan, because Carol's talking about a time when the careers advisor was kind of staring her away from what she wanted to do. But what was your experience when you became interested in what you wanted to do? Um, ironically, well, my dad is a DJ. Um, his name's Trevor Nelson. Mm -hmm. And... Well, I had to go with Trevor Nelson. <laughs> right. 
Yeah, um, it's just worth mentioning because I naturally took to DJing not because he encouraged it, in fact, when he saw I was getting into it, he actually discouraged it. Yeah. He didn't want me to follow his footsteps. Um, and I think because he, similarly, it's not really seen as a very, yeah, lucrative. It's difficult. Yeah, yeah. it is difficult to get into. Um, and so I put that to the back of my mind and instead I studied IT um, <laughs> at college and then uni. Uh, at the same time, still producing music and DJing on the side to like make my little as the shopping trip money at uni. <laughs> but um, eventually, the career just happened by itself. So Dad couldn't really stop that. I'm afraid. I like that because it's so interesting how often we steer away from what our heart is telling us is really the thing that we need to do. So it is our actual pleasure to have you both here because you've shown the tenacity that's taken you from a career path that you didn't really want to do to the one that you're both well known for now. And so for that, uh, I think we should give them a round of applause. So, Charles, just going to stay with you for a minute, because not only do you have a famous dad, you have a famous godfather, am I right? Yes. Can you tell everybody who that is? His name is Jazzy B. Um, <laughs> so another round of applause. She's got her jazzy wee top and she's rapping. I didn't plan that, I promise. Oh, did you not? I did not. Ah, okay, I like that. So, Carol, uh, you played the piano. Uh, You studied pharmacy for a while. uh, But you always had it in your heart to play music. That's right. And you became a Mm singer-songwriter. So, what was your first song? Oh, oh, the first song I ever wrote was a gospel song because I was very steeped in, in the church and it was a song called I Know That He's With Me and um, in the Pentecostal movement I was part of the New Testament Pentecostal movement and they used to have big conventions and competitions and music was always such an important part of the, the praise and worship and the whole, the whole movement and they had a competition, and I sang that song, and I won. And, uh, and that's what sort of ignited my belief in myself that, you know, this is something that I can do, people actually like it, mm. and I really enjoy performing. So that was the first song that I ever wrote. And my first um, hit was a song called I'm So Sorry, which was a song that I wrote when I was probably about 16, 15, 16. Wow, I don't know when I was younger than that. Yeah, yeah. Right, it's amazing. I wrote that song. And um, it was my first release, and it was just a hit straight away, which was just amazing. We're going to talk some more about that, because um, even the way you're saying it sounds quite humble, but it was an absolutely amazing hit, and we're going to talk some more about that. But what I do want to ask you is that, back in the day when you were living in Brent, where did you go to hear reggae music? Do you know, funny enough, reggae music was everywhere, but there were there was the Apollo Club in in, um, in Harlston. What it? Yes, it is Harlston in Harlston, and there were many clubs in London, South London, East London. You know that you had, especially in places like East London, you, you had Phoebe's, you had All Nations. But there were so many clubs to go to. Um, and a lot of black men um, had decided to invest in clubs um, 
primarily because we weren't invited anywhere else, and they, you know, got together and, and made these things ha happen. And there were a lot of clubs that were owned by black people. So, um, and there were plenty of house parties as well. So, good old house yeah, parties. Good old house parties and sound systems, you know, sound clashes. So, um, it was a very kind of, it was a, it was a wonderful time for music. It was very exciting. Um, you felt anything was possible. Uh, people wanted to invest. People wanted to make music. Record companies wanted to start making, become record companies. Um, producers, distributors, and um, it was really vibrant. Um, so I, I heard music, reggae music, everywhere I went, and I was I engulfed like in it from the UK based, and also from uh, from Jamaica too. It was great. Nice. It was wonderful, wonderful time. And how many of you been to Nations and Thebes and Night Moves and Apollo? Who still goes to Apollo? It's still open. It's still open. Is it really? Yeah. The first, I think it's the first Saturday of every month the Apollo's still going. So that's, that's, that's great. I like that. So Shaiwan, um, you're known for mixing a number of different genres. Um, can you tell me how you think reggae music might have influenced that? Um, a producer's was definitely, I can talk from that side as well, um, but grime music specifically, which I don't really play so much now, or I'm associating with, um, is directly influenced uh, definitely from the British and the London reggae uh, and sound system culture, as in how DIY is, um, that literally just the pressing up of records, distributing them yourselves, hand-to-hand -hand sales with record shops, um, as well as the like, structure of them and how the music is arranged and the fact, for me, one of the most important things is that it's all bass-driven music. If you listen to Graham or a lot of, like there is a subgenre now they call bass, um, everything is made kind of following uh, like mixing engineers who were in reggae studios. And so I think people are even as aware that older generations or reggae fans, not just older generations, but reggae fans in general aren't aware just how much it has influenced um, and kind of laid the, the groundwork for other UK underground electronic genres of music. As well as how we run our nights, everything. It's all sound system culture, which we get from reggae, which we get from Jamaica. I like that. Do you know, I was most excited about the education that I was going to gain from you tonight because I don't know anything about grime music. Um, and so that is a real education. I don't know how many of you are familiar with that, but um, that is, that's, that's fantastic. And a lot of the artists are the children of, um, well, the bigger, like the people of the Grand Pioneers, Wiley, Newham Generals and stuff, their fathers are reggae musicians and sound engineers and literally still have their own studios. I can't tell you they were, who they would have worked with, but it's a really common thing. Like, it's, there's a direct link, it's literally just the next generation who took that whole ethos and kind of took all, all that inspiration that they grew up with, all the sounds, and then made something new, but it still has that. There's this thread, this continuous thread, through bass, I'd say. Mm -hmm. I like that. Yeah. So, so, Carol, that's quite interesting because um, you are part of a, a slight, um, I guess a new, it was a new type of music. Love Drop was, was a UK uh, um, initiative. And so when you meet people from Jamaica and you talk to them about Love Rock, they don't always know who the artists are and that kind of thing. So what was that like for you being part of that new movement? It was really exciting. 
and um, something I completely felt comfortable in. We just got it, you know, we all had the same influences um, and we were just making music that made us feel good and uh, that was very honest, it wasn't premeditated, we weren't looking at market forces, we were just making a bunch of kids, making music, um, our reggae music, we, you know, as far as we could say, we're making reggae music, and everybody else is saying, well, I don't know what, what is that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. You know, but, you know, as far as we were concerned, we were doing that. We weren't actually thinking too, diff too hard about it. We were just making music and having the most fun doing it. So, um, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, it does. And what's really interesting, Carol, is that, um, I don't know if you're aware of this, but in the 80s there was a baby boom. Are you aware of that? <laughs> I think... <laughs> well, and, and what is it they say about your responsibility in relation to the baby boom of the 80s? So not only were you responsible for making music, apparently... I have many children out there. You have many children out there. So we are grateful for the 80s children, uh, Carol, of which you have some responsibility. But let's now talk about Hopelessly in Love. What would you like to know about Hopelessly in Love? Well, I think uh, most people will know, I'm so sorry, Hopelessly in Love is going to roll off their tongue uh, when they hear Carol Thompson. Now, that album was just amazing. So tell me about that album for you. What was that like for you making that album and how amazing and successful it was? Well, I mean, not to keep repeating myself, that album was probably made in two weeks. Right? Wow. So... Um, the entire album was made in two weeks. The entire album. Round of applause, I think. Let's keep so, that <laughs> you know, a bunch of teenagers give, have given this golden ticket of going into the studio and making music. And that's what we did, you know. It was time was money, you didn't have time to procrastinate. You went in there, you lay down the tracks, you go in there, you sing the songs, you do a couple of overdubs, maybe a horn section, maybe a few strings, maybe, you know, one, one, two, one or two things. I played on the piano first, and then we'd bring in um, another keyboard player that would, who would play while I could, so I could sing. And we just, we just went for it. You know, we just had fun. We made songs, finished the songs, mixed it the next week, and then it's out. You give it to the sound systems, or you give it to the local radio stations, and, and that was it. It was really that fast. That's amazing because you sold over a million copies. I know. Carol makes it sound so easy. We just put it the days and I played on the piano a little bit. What's fantastic, you also had a number, uh, a number of um, singles on there that did, uh, did really well. Um, and you were also uh, awarded Best Female Performer and Best Song. Yeah, that was a very humbling experience because as I said as you know you know you know you, you're kind of in your, your little cave making music um, and you're all kind of having so much fun with it but you don't really know whether people are going to relate are going to be interested and so when you receive an award and you realize how your music touches people and how they've embraced what you do it's very humbling and it's a gift I don't know where this gift came from. I just I, I know that I was lucky to be gifted, and I treat my gift with respect, and um, I look after my gift, 
and I'm respectful of my gift. And I'm very humbled when people like yourself want to speak to me. I'm very humbled when I do shows and people cry and say that, you know, this song reminds me of the, the first guy that they ever loved or the first woman they ever loved. Well, they bring a ch- Sunday. Yeah. You know, so it's like, it's interesting. It is lovely. You know, it's a wonderful journey, and I feel very blessed and privileged. I love it. So can I ask you, Carol, this is quite a good uh, point now to ask you about when you were growing up um, as a much younger person, before you started your own journey in music, what sort of music were you hearing in your home? What were your parents playing, and what were they playing it on? Right, well, they were playing it on the gram. Round of applause for the gram. That's my favourite thing. And it's funny because I grew up with my grandparents. So, as I said, my mother, grandmother, was a minister of religion. She was one of the first black women to be ordained as a minister of religion in the Pentecostal movement. And then became a director of um, the youth services within the churches to travel all around the world as one of the first black women to do that. And my grandfather used to run a blues. <laughs> so I had this that kind of dichotomy of, you know, Sunday mornings and my, my grandfather rolling in Sunday morning, coming back from the blues, and my grandmother saying, La preference! <laughs> <laughs> it was really interesting. That's, so that's my, quite familiar, yeah, actually. <laughs> so my, grandf- my grandmother would have Jim Reeves and, you know, and, and all the religious songs playing. And my grandfather would have long shot kick the bucket. <laughs> nice, nice. But apart from that, my grandfather was a great jazz lover. So one of the first songs that I ever dared to put on to the turntable was Ella Fitzgerald, um, was I, which was a foggy day in London, London town. And I just fell in love with this woman's voice because she just sounded like an angel to me. So she was my first musical influence. But the music we had in the house was reggae music, or rock steady, because it wasn't kind of reggae in the early days, it was rock steady, skia and rock steady, and um, Jim Reeves, and Andy Williams. Indeed, thank you so much. So, Shyron, what were you listening to as a younger person at home? What was was, on, you know, your dad? Spinning on the decks, what was he doing? So I grew up with my mum and uh, I used to go visit dad and pinch some records as well. But um, because my parents were pretty young, um, my mum was... I didn't grow up in a household where I heard reggae all the time. She had like a handful of records that she inherited from a, a great uncle. Um, but it was garage, it was neo-soul, hip-hop mostly. Nice. So it was that, but I still grew up knowing like your, the words to your, to your records. Um, obviously, christenings, funerals, nine nights. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, what, what year were you born? <laughs> this, this is an 80s child. No, I'm not. <laughs> I'm, I'm 1990. I'm 1990, yeah. and my mum had me at 21, and she's like 52 now. So, yeah, I'm a pretty. Yeah, but um, not here. I still had do my grandparents. I had my grandparents, my Jamaican grandparents, living here. I used to stay with them, and 
just hear it around the rest of the family and listening to pirate radio. Thankfully, living in Northwest London, we had an amazing selection of pirate radio stations and all this incredible heritage. So you roll around Brent, you can't help but hear reggae. So important, so important. I like that. So Carol, back in the day, uh, did uh, reggae music influence the way that you dressed? Absolutely did. Tell us more about that. So the reggae dresses, pleated skirts, gold tip shoes, and sometimes pinstripe suits, but like blouse with the, the bow in the front and hair looking like a sauce, sauce, saucer. Saucer. And stuff like that. It was interesting, you know, it was really lovely. And then if you, like me, I had like both reggae friends and soul friends, so we'd go and do the soul rave, I'd have to change clothes <laughs> and then go to the reggae rave because the clothes that you'd wear for the soul, soul thing, you'd wear for the reggae thing. So music was very much defined by a dress code back in the day, whereas now it's, it's not even an issue. But in those days, it was very interesting that you could look at someone and say, well, yeah, that's a roots man. You know, that's a sticks man. That's a <laughs> you know, that's a reggae girl. That's a soul girl. You know, that's a soul boy. Pinkle was it? Oh, we call pinkles or whatever. You know, so I do remember the gold tips. For yeah, sure, yeah. There was definitely um, demarcation of the type of music that you were into. You had a uniform that went with it. Nice. So, Sharon, what about you? Can you tell what genre of music people are in by the way they dress now? It's getting harder to tell, mm. but before you could tell if someone's wearing a tracksuit, some like TNs or something, they're into grime. Yeah. But um, it is definitely getting harder to tell. You have people who dress like skaters or even like kind of more of a, a metal vibe and you'll see them in yeah, like a house rave or in a grime rave or something. But funny enough, I know you probably didn't even think it would, but reggae has actually influenced how I dress. Not today. <laughs> I did. I said to my flatmate like, I was going to wear my clocks, but it just didn't work in the end. But I, I love my clock shoes of reggae. Yeah, I, somehow, despite it not being really in my sound or I'm not known for it, it does actually influence every aspect of my life. Because you did used to play reggae as well, am I right? Yeah, I, used to, I have a little rec. I'm, I'll be honest, Carol, I've got your record here with me because I've got to sign it. But. <laughs> 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 okay, okay. I love it, I love it, I love it. I, I used to play. Um, I still will play reggae on radio. You can go online and find some sets of me playing, like on Roots FM or whatever. On radio, I still I play whatever, but in clubs, not so much. But I did used to be known for playing like old school dance or especially. Mm. Um, at university parties and even sometimes now at my collective raves I'll still play it. Nice. So Carol, your first record, what was the first record you bought? Reggae record? Reggae record I ever bought was um, Gregory Isaac's Love Is Over You. Yes. Can you remember where you bought it? I bought it at a small, because um, I grew up in Hertfordshire, right? so I bought it at a small um, record shop called David's book. Well, it was a bookshop, but the, the guy that owned the bookshop was such a, a reggae lover. So at the back of the bookshop, he'd have this counter where he'd get all the imports from Jamaica. <laughs> in the heart of Hertfordshire, this is, a little, this is a hippie guy called David. And it was amazing, right? So. So we'd go there, go there and he'd say, well, these are the new releases, these are the pre-releases. I mean, he knew everything there was to know about reggae music. 
So I ordered. It was fantastic. You like Dave, don't you? Dave was great. (laughs) And so, yeah, so I bought two records that day. I bought Love Is Overdue, and I bought Pick Up The Pieces, which is uh, the average white band. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So, Charlotte, speaking to Carol, I use the term record referring to vinyl. Yeah, me too. Oh, you, you do vinyl too? I wasn't sure. So when did you buy your first vinyl or your first reggae vinyl? Um, I'd have to mention my first two purchases because okay. it ties into why we're all here. But the first record I ever bought was actually, um, probably no one's heard of it, but it was a group called Icons. It's like a crunk record featuring Little Kim. And it was a vinyl. It was maybe when I was 11. Um, and I think, oh, no, I might as well mention the second record. I think I bought them in the same shop. The second record was a, a grime, a classic grime tune called Oi by Morphar Crew. Yeah. Oh, which yeah, sounds very, you can hear the direct influence. It just sounds like a sped up, like a, you put a, a record that should be at 33 or 45, basically. But maybe it was 45 anyway. But um, I bought those records from Daddy Ernie's shop. Nice. So yeah, those were those were my first two vinyl purchases, age eleven and twelve, I think, in Wembley. Mm-hmm. I think Daddy Annie would be pleased if to, to hear that. He'd be pleased. I'll make sure I pass that message on. To Please do. I yeah. will do. He'll be very excited about that. So Carol, uh, you speak very humbly. You know, you've made a record in two weeks. You know, you sat on a car in a fur coat. All that kind of thing. But you have actually been a session singer for some very, very famous people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, currently, I also found myself in the world of um, session singing, um, which I've totally enjoyed as well, because you got to see the other side, and the pop side, and so I was able to travel the world and, and, and sing with a lot of my icons. So, yeah, it was wonderful. Should yeah. we call out some of who they are? You can call I'm going to. So we've got Michael Jackson. MJ, Stevie Wonder, Natalie Cole, Pet Shop Boys, Robbie Williams, Boy George, Maxi Priest. Maxi Priest is from Brent, right? No, she's from South London, he's Southern. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, still Maxi Priest, I'm still like Maxi Priest. <laughs> Steve, uh, Billy Ocean, Shaka Khan, Aswad, Aswad's Brent. Yeah. And M People. Yeah. That's fantastic, isn't it? Oh, yeah. yeah. Sharon, you know, we know that your dad's famous and your godfather's famous, but, um, and you've got Carol's record with you. Um, is there anyone else that you really admire in the, in the record industry that has influenced maybe some of the songs that you do play? Well, like someone who's homegrown, ideally. Just, just anybody, just, you know. It is very much, it sounds like jazzy is a really big influence for me. Um, I mean, outside of him, I don't think I would narrow it down, but I think just on a level, like the pioneers of black British music, I, I, I spend that obsessively, most evenings I just watch documentaries, like I watched the documentary on Lovers recently, I was just like, I'm just going backwards, I'm obsessed with the past, and so I can't really name someone exactly, but it's literally just everyone who has been before me uh, where I'm from. I like that. So this is a really nice match, isn't this? This is working so well. <laughs> You're ahead of your time. You are ahead of your time. So, um, Carol, in 2004, you were voted by the British public at a nation poll as one of the 100 greatest 
black Britons of all time. Wow. <laughs> you look surprised, did you not know that? You look a bit surprised. It's just the way you... Yeah, because I, I just think it is something that needs to be delivered in the way that it was delivered because that's a, a, a phenomenal uh, achievement and we are here celebrating a reggae artists of which you are one. Um, it is great to have Shaiwan uh, with us today because one of the things we do want to do is we want to of course leave a legacy and the way that we do that is by having events like this. It's by sharing our stories and coming together as a community. So, Shaiwan, uh, so you don't sing, is that right? I do not sing, not yet. She does not sing. <laughs> so just tell us a little bit about what life's like for you as a DJ. What does it look like? Where do you do it? How um, does it work? I just got back last week from probably the last place I'd ever think I'd get booked for, uh, in, and I was pretty scared about it as well, it was Russia. Um, so it can be very surprising, a little bit scary, takes you out of your comfort zone, but it's just incredible how far this music can reach. And also when you go to places like Russia or Brussels, um, Serbia, like three places i played in the last two years, played a few times, it's really odd, but these places that you think are going to be more hostile towards us and you think our music couldn't possibly have like penetrated that deep into these, like in the middle of these landlocked countries, is where, if anything, they want you to go more soulful. Mm-hmm. It's, it's something, yeah, it's really odd. Um, but DJing is, at the moment, yeah, just taking me to loads of different new places I never imagined I would go to. Um, just generally being pleasantly surprised by how music can... Also, there's a language barrier, you know, when you travel to a different country, and sadly, I can only speak English and slang. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but it works. Yeah. And um, just seeing how this is like a universal language and a universal community. Um, but right now, yeah, I'm just grateful for it taking me to new countries each time, allowing me to spread the sound. And also, I always educate people. My, my sets are a mixture. I, I play a lot of old music. So getting to educate them as well, especially on black British music and the people that came before. I'm very, very proud of you. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Interestingly, you strike as somebody who's quite bold, really, because that's quite a brave thing to do. Uh, so tell me, shy one. Yeah. Why are you called shy one? It, um, it originally began because I had a different name as a DJ when I was 13, that's when I started. And then a year later I started making beats and I didn't want people to know that it was me. Um, and this is when you could make a song in an evening on your computer and then send it out to everyone. Was it Fruity Loops or something? Yeah, I used Fruity Loops and then I jump on MSN and send it to my mates and stuff or get sent around on Bluetooth on phones. Long story short, I didn't want people to know it was me. I wanted a quick, gender-neutral, anonymous name so people wouldn't be able to connect it to me, so I thought about a shy one. Sadly, it stuck. And <laughs> 17 years later or whatever, I'm still called shy one, but I also like to say, I suppose it's a bit of irony. Indeed. So, Carol, you have been in reggae music for a very long time, yeah. and we appreciate that. Do you have a favourite concert, a favourite duo, a favourite individual? A favourite 
There's a moment that when you think of that moment, you say to yourself, that was the moment. In terms of a performance? Anything. Performance, <laughs> meeting somebody. Because uh, Sharon's talking about the fact that her work as a DJ yeah. has meant that she's travelled. Um, I know that reggae music and actually, uh, for sure, Lovers Rock yeah. is international and goes to places like Japan. Mm. So maybe what was your first experience like when you went to Japan? Yeah, but Japan is so unlike anywhere else on the globe. Very unique. I'm sure you've been. been. Oh, yeah. Oh, on the list. That's on the list. All right. It's a, such a unique country. And um, going to Japan for the first time and the way that they received, my, received me was just incredible. You know, they were just so respectful and they were just so happy to have the music. And it was just amazing just playing to all these thousands of people in Japan and it, they were just crying. It was just wow. so strange. It was just very moving, but just really, you know, sometimes they, 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 you know, they understand the language, of course, but it's just, they just, as you were saying, is that the music transcends the, the language barrier. They loved the, the feeling that Lovers Rock gave them. They loved the, the love songs. They're very romantic people. And so, for me, it was a real experience the very first time I went there and um, just how receptive and how warm and embracing they were um, to the music and how respectful they were to our sound. They actually, you know, they're very good at, you know, the Japanese are so good at analysing and um, picking things apart and, you know, they were, were able to tell me exactly all the people who played on my album, they'd be able to tell you the difference between your music and the music that came out of Jamaica and the music that comes out of Hawaii or the music that comes out of Canada as reggae music. That's because, the language barrier. Yeah, because you know, all, every country that, that um, creates their, their reggae expression it has a different slant. You know, the, the music that comes out of Jamaica has its, you know, it's, it's like the, the, the pure, the, the, the tree. And we're all branches from that tree, and you know, depending on where you're located in the world, is the type of influence that you bring to reggae music. Whether it's in Africa, whether it's, uh, as I said, in Israel, whether it's in the, in all of Europe, and Canada and America, and, and also here in the UK, we have our own style. So they were able to just explain, you know, when you were having these interviews, they were just breaking all down. They were just so obsessive and went so deeply into the research of reggae music and what we were doing as lovers of artists. It's fantastic. That sounds phenomenal. It so was. I do um, want to take this time, actually, to hail up some of the other legends. <coughs> um, Janet Kay. Yeah. Yeah. Louisa Mark. Yeah. 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 Paula Taja. Yeah. Audrey Scott. And there are so many, I, I, I don't have enough time, but we just want to uh, really hail up all of our reggae legends, both in the UK, uh, in Jamaica, and in other places. I need to just find my time for you, because I'm not sure how I'm doing with time. Have you got time for questions now? Oh, okay. So, sadly, we don't have time for questions. I couldn't see my timekeeper, and I was kind of hoping. But... Um, yeah. Oh, <laughs> so can I, um, Seneca, can you come very quickly with the 
Call this mic, let's call in Seneca. Oh, she's already here. So, okay, this is going to be a bit like the lottery because um, I've been instructed. So can I just say, because we are out of time, and I do apologise for that, um, so can we be quite succinct if it's a statement and if it's a question, you get where I'm going with this. Okay, so, is that one on? Okay, so, go for it. Question, hands up. Oh, it might not be stuff. Okay. Would you like to stand so that we can see you? Good evening, everyone. Good evening. I'm interested to understand why don't we see more reggae artists at uh, Winningwall Awards? Yeah. We've noticed a uh, recent young girl from Jamaica, Coffee done well. I believe she just smashed it. I believe we should see more. Yeah. Why do you think we're going to see more? Why don't we see more? Yeah. Why don't we see more? Oh, why don't we see more? I, I guess that question's to Carol, right? Or is it to, is it to either? Who, who's that question to? I think um, Coffee is the first person that's been given uh, a big enough platform, definitely as a woman or anyone in reggae for a very long time, so this could be the first of many, in my opinion. There have been uh, a few people um, over the years um, being given sort of high platform um, and um, I mean Morgan Heritage stood for several years ago on a Grammy um, Ziggy Marley has won several Grammys and um, there are many people um, a very reggae artists that, that, that have had some, I mean it might not have been as publicised as, 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 as Coffee but there have been several people you know Thank you for that Okay, so next question. Hi. Hi. Good evening. Good evening. Um, it's a question to Carol. Being a, a young black artist back in the 70s, how did you find it? Because we've got, you know, we had Bob Marley back in the days. Um, he had it really hard, especially when money, you know, had to be paid out. I know it's a bit of a nosy question, but I'm a nosy person. <laughs> but how did you find it, you know? Was it really hard for you to sort of um, collect your money, so to speak, or be known, even though you're known now? But, you know, how was it back then? Because I know it's, it's, it's easier now. Mm. It was very difficult. It was very male-dominated. And um, as a female, at the time I used to have, I struggled. I was fortunate to have a, a few men around. I had a really great producer called Bertie Grant, who um, did, who listened, and who was very protective. So I was fortunate to have that protection as a female. Many females didn't have that protection. So I, I, I really thank God for Bertie and the fact that he protected me through the, the navigating through that industry. It was hard as a female. And hard as someone like myself who writes and I produce and, um, he, you know, I was able to have the opportunity to do that. And many females didn't. I was able to make a whole album, whereas a lot of the young female artists were just making singles with this producer, that producer. So there was nothing that was cohesive. So I was fortunate that I was able to go to the studio and make a whole album. So it was very difficult in that sense. It was very difficult in terms of the business because it's very loose and very grey. Right. That's all I'm going to say. But it was, it was, it was, it wasn't easy. 
Yeah. You know, it wasn't easy. Can I just say, um, my sister, Sandra, I saw she's, she's passed away now. She was one of your fans. And Hopelessly in Love was one of her all-time favourites. So thank you for that. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, uh, thank you for that, Jasmine. We have been given the opportunity for one more question, so who wants to go for it? Has anybody got a question for young Shira? You say she's got a Okay, we've got we've got some. Okay, we'll come to that after. Good evening, everybody. Um, yes, I, I wanted to ask a question because, as has been alluded to, um, throughout, you know, the the music of of um, Carol and so many other artists of her generation was responsible for some of us to be able to go to the dance floor and um, she spoke about the dress code and I guess as a, as a man I would admit I used to double every piece in the skirt <laughs> <laughs> so that was how we used to meet and how we used to find partners and how we used to then be able to, to um, connect but we were respectful back in the day we were respectful but um, with the young people now, the way how people dance and in, interact, how does that interaction um, come about and what are the codes? You take time and you eat up beside the woman and you give her cup and ask her and she don't want to, she turn, turn away and you just move off, dance again, don't feel nobody goes in. How do you do it now? It's kind of what the talk on the beat, I think we won't translate that, I'll tell that you after the show. The, the important thing to note is that what I understand from the young men's questions that he wants to know how does it work when two individuals want to dance? Is it still as respectful and yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um no. <laughs> It's, it's, really, it's really not. Thankfully, um, because of the collectives I'm in and the, the dancers, I mean, they're in the booth if I'm booked for a, a random party or if it's parties thrown by my collectives. We have safe space policies and whatnot, so everyone that comes in there uh, has respect. Like, we have a policy, you're not coming in. If you don't do it, so that you're out. But in other dances that I have been to in the past and played at, it's, yeah, it's not really about consent and that and personal space awareness. Um, and sadly, not all the time when you turn a man down, it is not accepted, uh, yeah, or handled with grace. Yeah. To be honest, I don't want to end it on a sad tip, but that's the thing. So please talk to your sons. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so um, before I call uh, Camille, I don't know if Camille's out. Um, in the hallway. First of all, I want to say thank you to His Excellency Seth Ramakon for hosting the event. We have had an absolute amazing time here. Every time I come here, I have a fantastic time. So thank you, uh, and Jampro, and also Vivine, who I can't see, but she's been amazing in helping us, myself and Zarita, to put uh, the event together. I also want to thank all of you, of course, for turning out and supporting the event. It's so important. And please spread the word about Brent cultures 2020 there's so many amazing things coming up sorry Kat, did you have a question very quickly well, before it's more of a comment okay 
just just a quick one. Uh, uh, appreciate that very much, uh, and uh, Your Excellency, thank you very much for hosting the event here today. General Carroll, uh, um, it was a comment you made about the tree and the branching out, uh, but it goes actually down to the to the roots uh, and what the excellent, His Excellency was talking about. The, the, the music, the reggae music, right, that, that has actually, you, you don't see how far it's reached, and the roots, you don't, you know, the analogy there, right, it, it, they, they just go out everywhere, don't they, and, and they touch everyone's lives, and how it's made it, you know, to, to be here today, how it's so important that we capture exactly what you guys are, are saying, and how reggae music, Delroy and everybody else, and, and, and who's been involved in, in, in reggae music, how we need to make sure we, we capture the, uh, the essence of what we're talking about and just make sure uh, that uh, 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 all the positive things we're talking about, we reach out and make sure everyone hears about it, right? rather than just the people in this room. It is about making sure we celebrate every culture and, and every heritage we have. And, and this is, it just makes me feel so proud to be here today and to be the borough culture, to be with Patricia, to be with people yourselves and yourselves. Uh, let's make sure we continue that journey and, and the archives that Zarif has been talking about. It's going to be an amazing experience, an amazing journey, uh, and, and it's something that I want every single person outside of this room to remember and to be proud of. Thank you. Um, so, let's think the best way. Should we thank our guests and then you do? Okay, so, before we invite uh, Camille, I want you to now put your hands together and join me in saying a very, very big thank you. Oh, I have had an absolute amazing time. First of all, Shaiwan, would you stand so we can greet you? Thank you. This is our future. I'm really excited. I'm really excited. Thank you so much. And of course, last but not least, we have to leave the Queen. <laughs> so can you now put your hands together and join me in a very, very big thank you to the Queen of Lovers Rock, that is Carol Thompson. <laughs>